A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored in honor of the Sefer HaChinuch 2020 Chabura. Many members of the Chabura are descendants of the Chernobyl dynasty, and this episode will um, explore the origins of the uh, Chernobyl dynasty and how the different branches developed and grew and spread across Ukraine and then around the world over the last couple of centuries. But before we do so, of course, I'll have to uh, continue uh, elaborating on the different segments of the audio intro uh, in, before every episode. And we're up to number seven, I believe, um, which is me describing the uh, Hevron massacre of 1929, in the summer of 1929, August. There's a terrible massacre in Hevron of the Jewish community there. 67 uh, members of the community were killed. Uh, 24 of those were from the Slabatki Yeshiva, which had uh, just moved to uh, Hevron five years prior, in 1924, from its home in Slabatka in Lithuania, and established itself in the ancient city of Hevron. And 24 students, which was about an eighth of the Yeshiva population, and most of those who were there during the summer break, Bein Azmanim. But what's even more interesting and tragic about uh, that story is that eight of whom, out of out of those 24, again, 67 from the entire community were killed, out of those 24 were from the Slabatki Yeshiva, out of those 24 from the Slabatki Yeshiva, eight of whom were American students. In other words, the first uh, students who had gone across the ocean to study in a Yeshiva, which was for the 1920s, extremely uncommon. And uh, they they gave their lives uh, for for to, for the study of Torah in the land of Israel, and a very special story. Um, that's that. The next clip is Reb Shimon Schwab, the great uh, Torah leader of the last generation, the head of the Breuer's community in Washington Heights, and one of the heads of Agudas Yisrael. So he's speaking at the ninth Siyum Hashas in Madison Square Garden in 1990, and he's discussing. The Jewish children, the martyrs who perished at the hands of the Nazis during the Holocaust. It was about a million and a half Jewish children. Um, and he, you know, it strikes a special chord uh, beyond the tragedy of the six million um, victims of, uh, of the Nazi Holocaust. This, the fact that about a million and a half um, were children 
uh, is always uh, uh, you know, a powerful uh, statement and story, and that was what uh, Rav Shimon Schwab chose to discuss in that clip. The ninth one, the next one, is a recording of the paratroop commander Matagur of the Israeli army, the Israeli paratroopers, who his paratroopers are the ones who had gone through the Lion's Gate on the fourth day of the Six-Day War in 1967, in June 1967, and they they captured the the old city, and of course the Jewish Quarter, and the Temple Mount, where the Kaisel Hamaravi is, the Western Wall, and uh, and he's announcing on the radio his headquarters, his commanding position was actually in Harazasim, in the middle of the Jewish cemetery there, and he's announcing over the field radio, Har Habayit Biadenu, the Harabayas, which includes the Kaisel and the whole area of the Harabayas, where the Beis HaMikdash once stood, is in our hands. So that's also a historic clip. So here we go uh, from our introduction into the story of Chernobyl, starting with the Ma'are Nayim, Reb Nachum of Chernobyl, who was a student of the Baal Shem Tov himself. Chernobyl really is probably the oldest, if not one of the oldest dynasties in the history of Hasidus. Karlin is almost around the same time, drop later. So Chernobyl really is most probably the oldest straight dynasty, father to son, Dynasty of the Tversky family, a prestigious, one of the most, uh, uh, you know, uh, prestigious lineage families in um, in the world, in the Jewish world, and almost everyone knows the Tversky. The family is so huge and massive, and so you can, you know, next time you see your neighbor or friend or cousin or whatever Tversky, say, "Oh, I know a little bit more about your very important uh, family." Um, and uh, it's also interesting because we're going to mostly, primarily focus not on the Maranaim, the founder of the dynasty, or Nachum Chernobler, but really on his son and and his sons. The the diffusion of Chernobyl, for lack of a better word, the fallout. I guess if we'll use the uh, the the uh, association of what Chernobyl u- means to most people today of the uh, nuclear disaster. So this was not this is not a disaster. This was a spread that was actually very positive. So there's the these the disaster of the of the spread of Chernobyl, but uh, at the same time there was a release of tremendous. At the same time, 200 years earlier, there was a release of spiritual energy from Chernobyl that also diffused all over the all over Ukraine and then later all over the world. So that comes from the next uh, part of the, the, the stage in the in the dynasty, Ramutl Chernobyler, the Chernobyler Magid, Mordechai Tversky of Chernobyl, one of the greatest leaders in the history of the Hasidic movement, and he had eight sons. So I thought it was uh, apropos. Someone alerted me to this even before I recorded. I told him I'm going to speak, be speaking about Chernobyl. He said, Ramatul Chernobyler had eight sons, and all of them became tzaddikim. All of them became Hasidic leaders and rebbes. And you're talking about it on Hanukkah. There's the eight nights of Hanukkah, and here it's the eight lights of Hasidus emanating from Chernobyl, from Ramatul Chernobyler. So I thought, wow, that's an incredible connection. I wonder if there's some Hasidic safer out there that makes that connection. I have no idea, because I... Not uh, not very acquainted with all of the Tyra, but um, but it's an interesting symbolic uh, connection. The light of Chernobyl through the eight sons of Ramatul Chernobyl, which is what we're going to discuss. So Ramatul Chernobyl, the Chernobyl Magad, is of course the son of Reb Nachum, the Ma'are Naim, who was a student of both the Baal Shem Tev himself and the Magad of Mizrich. So he's early on, and he was a you know a, a big tzaddik. He founded the dynasty. And a a a, a, um, a 
a tremendous um, you know, father to his people. He would go around from town to town and would raise money for Pidyan Shvuyim, for redeeming captives, and lived in poverty himself. Um, and then his son, Ramatul, the Ramordechai uh, Tversky of Chernobyl, the Magid, they called him, the Chernobyl Magid, he um, was a son-in-law of Rav Aaron Hagadol of Karlin, the first Karlina Rebbe, the, the, the student of the Magid of Mizrich. And in his second marriage, and he had children from both marriages, he was a son-in-law of Rabbi David Lykis, who was also a figure who figures prominently in the early story of the Hasidic movement. He was a student of the Baal Shem Tov. So you're talking about from both his father-in-laws and his father, all his connections are very, very strongly entrenched in the early Hasidic movement. You're talking about he was growing up at the end of the 18th century, and he was the one of the most prominent, perhaps the most influential uh, leader of his day in that area, for sure, in Ukraine. Uh, he was involved in everything. He was involved in in in, in almost all the his next generation Sadiqim at some point either visited him or were influenced by him or were students of his. He uh, took leadership positions uh, in the Jewish community and vis-a-vis the uh, government. Um, and he was also the first regal court before Rabbi Yisrael of Rizhin, who saw Friedman the Rizhiner, would come to define the the Derech uh, Hamalchus, the regal way in Hasidus, or Matul Chernobyl had the first regal court, and Chernobyl, to a certain extent, uh, we'll see certain sons of his and grandchildren of his continued that way. Uh, the regal way was not exclusive to Rizhin, it was very much prominent in Chernobyl. By the way, there's a lot of marriages in between the two Ukrainian-Russian dynasties in the, in the, throughout the entire uh, 19th century between Chernobyl and Rizhin. Those are the two dominant dynasties of Ukraine, um, for sure, at least until uh, the Rizhin escaped out of Russia into uh, Austria-Hungary, but that's a different story. So, the, um, the, 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 he, he's known as the Chernobyl Magid, and the reason was is because he was officially, like his father, the Magid in Chernobyl, but he comes to have a very unique a feature that becomes a hallmark of the Chernobyl dynasty, and that is that that that, that he obtains a Ksav Magidus, which is kind of a symbolic uh, um, that him him being uh, in in charge of or in, responsible for the well-being and the welfare and spiritual and physical welfare of towns, and he would get it from surrounding towns near Chernobyl and the whole Kiev central Ukraine area, and. Um, and it would become much more prominent in, in his son's activities. They would get a Ksav Magidus, for instance, from, from some town, from some shtetl. And that Ksav Magidus wasn't that he would be the official Magid. It was more of a symbolic connection that the Tzaddik has to the town. And in other dynasties, we don't really find this. This was rather unique to Chernobyl. And this, and this made that this specific Tzaddik, in the case of Ramatul Chernobyl, it was of him, that he was the Magid of, he was in charge of that town. And he was, he would, the, the Hasidim would be there, and he would be in charge of hiring the Shaykhtim, and the Rabbi, and the Malamid of the Cheder, and, and uh, any of the other, other responsible, uh, um, responsibilities of the town. And of course, you, the town would help fund the Tzaddik, and the activities, and the court, and, um, and they would be, it would be called Ma'amodais, they would, they would pay like a, a tax, um, which 
would develop, further develop in the next generations of the Hasidus, which I'll discuss when we get to his sons. But that already starts from Ramatul Shinobla. Um, the dynastic principle in Hasidus becomes solidified with the Ramatul Chernobyl. Uh, it had not been solidified in most of the other dynasties yet. And there are those who, who, who'd like to talk about how it really started with Rebichil Michal Zlatshev, the Zlatshev Magid, and with his sons. But really in the, in the, in its, in its, uh, in its more influential form, the Chernobyl came to define the dynastic principle. In other words, there are, there are other dyna- dynasties that were still going with meritocracy, and from, from Tzaddik to his Talmidim, from Rebbe to Talmud, from teacher to his students. In, in Chernobyl, right away, it became a dynasty, and that was later copied by most of the other dynasties, ultimately, and the Tversky family dynasty became synonymous with Chernobyl and all of the other branches. It's interesting that when I was growing up, and, and I, you know, I just mean this in a completely joking way, no one should take this the wrong way, there was a joke, I grew up in Muncie, um, and, and, uh, and you know, uh, Square, New Square is next to Muncie, so we, we used to go to New Square, we used to go to, my, my first exposure to Hasidus was to Chernobyl, because all I saw was Square, and uh, we would go for, for, uh, for, we'd go for brachas to the Square Rebbe, we would go for, to matzah baking in Square, we would go in Simchas Beis Hashem, we'd always go, we'd walk on Simchas Teranite, we would go to Square, we'd go all the time. So there was a joke going around when I was a kid, that the, uh, again, that was the 90s, so the, the Cold War had only ended a few years before, so it was still somewhat fresh, that uh, there was that, that the joke went that the Skvara Rebbe met Gorbachev, the last uh, um, you know supreme leader, I guess we'll call him of the Soviet Union before it collapsed, before it imploded, and um, and he, I mean he didn't. The, the joke went that he met him, and 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 the Gorbachev uh, Gorbachev said to the Skvara Rebbe that you have to thank me. I spread Chernobyl all over the world. After the nuclear explosion in 1986, so the Square turns to Gorbachev and says, "You have to thank me. I spread communism." That was the joke, and of course, I don't mean it in a bad way. And please don't uh, don't take it that way. It was just a joke. Just everyone relax. And the idea was is that it became a certain feature of the Chernobyl dynasty that the Rebbe has a very close interaction with his Hasidim over their communal life over the structure of the community, over hiring the different functionaries within the community, wherever he had this Ksav Magidus from, that he was officially the Magid of the towns that he was in charge of. And that became a very, very big feature of Chernobyl. They were very, very proud of it. That the, the Rebbes, the Tzaddikim had a, a responsibility to the Hasidim, and the Hasidim belonged to the Rebbe in a, in a very strong and personal way. Um, and it was a very Russian Hasidus, as the, one of the few Russian big dynasties, um, of course, Chabad in the north and Chernobyl in the south. There were some smaller ones, of course, um, but this was the main one, especially after Rizhin left and went into Austria-Hungary. So when the Magid, the Chernobyl Magid, Ramatul, uh, in his later years, uh, he, he was not so healthy, he was sick, he was an old man, and elderly, and um, and he was not uh, functioning in the same uh, capacity of leadership as he was when he was in his prime, when he was younger and he was healthy. So his sons started to become rebbes and tzaddikim in his own lifetime. He himself left Chernobyl in his last years. He settled in Bohuslav, in another town. He kind of retired. It's unclear exactly what happened there. And he allowed for the transition to his sons to take place. It's very interesting that the originer 
uh, named his son, Rabbi Yisrael of Rizh, named one of his sons, Rabbi Mordechai Faivish, later the Rebbe of Hosiatin. He named him Mordechai after the Chernobyl Magid, while the Chernobyl Magid was still alive. And he, the originer explained that, that the, the Chernobyl Magid is above this world. It's as if he's not even in this world. He's so above at this point in his later years that he's, he's not, uh, he's not really in this world. So, so to a certain extent, so that's how his sons start to divide it up. And the empire is divided up. And what happens in many, many other courts and dynasties throughout Eastern Europe is that one son or one Talmud becomes the Rebbe of the dynasty and other sons either are subservient to that or they move to other areas. What here what happens is that each and every son becomes a Rebbe, becomes a Tzaddik. They are, have jurisdiction in a specific territory, primarily in central Ukraine, in the Kiev area, in the Kiev district, but not only, not exclusively, we'll see soon. And they and they all they all start courts of their own. Some of them very prominent courts. So it doesn't remain in exclusively in Chernobyl. So the eight branches of the Menorah, as it were, the eight sons. Um, the oldest one was Reb Aaron Tversky. He becomes the Rebbe in Chernobyl itself, and he continues the Chernobyl dynasty with the Chernobyl name. And the next one is Reb Meisha Tversky of Koryshchev. Starts another branch of the Hasidus. Um, the third one is Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Tversky Cherkas, and he has he his his name becomes a famous name in the dynasty. His grandson was his successor and grandson, his his, his uh, son-in-law um, passed away yeah, in his lifetime, and his grandson was Rabbi Mordechai Doiv, a Harnestaipel, and he moves it from Cherkas to Harnestaipel. And this Ramot Chadoya was a tremendous tzaddik, also a huge Talmud Chacham. And the, the stipler, by the way, who was born and grew up really, ra- rather, in Harness Stipel and into a Hasidic home, he's named for, the stipler was named Yaakov Yisrael. He's named for the Cherkasa, the son of, of the Chernobyl Magad, Yaakov Yisrael Tversky. The stipler was named for him. So all these, these big Litvaks in Bnei Brak who named uh, their son uh, after the stipler, and there's all these Yaakov Yisrael's running around. They're really, really named for and originally the uh, a big uh, one of the big Hasidic rebbes of the 19th century, and um, so so Ramotcha of of Harness Stiple was was known as a a big Talmud also a Paisik, and he corresponded actually with some of the greatest Paiskim of of his day, the Shailo Meishiv, Rabbi Yisrael Natanzan in in Lvov, and also as far away as the great Lithuanian. Uh, Torah leaders, Rabbi Shuleib Diskin, the Rav in Brisk, Rabbi Chaim Berlin, the Rav in Moscow, the son of uh, of, of the Netziv, and, and not only that, but Ramad Chadayv Harnas Taipel's uh, uh, father-in-law was the Devrei Chaim of Tzans. So he was connected everywhere. So he had the Tzans, he had the, he was connected with the Litvaks, and of course he came from from Chernobyl. So that uh, Harnas Taipel dynasty comes from Cherkas, which which is it's part of the Chernobyl story as well. You have the next son was Rabbi Nachum Tversky of Makarov. So you had the Makarov Hasidus. And then you have the next one is unique in that he's Rabbi Avram Tversky. And he moves to Trisk. Here comes the Trisker Hasidic dynasty. And he's the only one who moves out of the, in the first generation, who moves out of the central Ukraine area, the Kiev area. He moves to Volin. So it was known in, to the Jews of that time, Volinya. 
in uh, in the local language, and it was and later on that became part of Poland. So that would be very influential. Uh, that would bring essentially that would bring the Chernobyl influence into Congress Poland, um, because Trisk is the only one who moves that far west. Everyone else stays local, stays in the Ukraine, stays in the central area by Kiev, and Trisk is way out west. And the tzaddikim of Poland, um, Grzysk and Koznitz and, and all kinds of other tzaddikim, they came to Ravram of Trisk, who's one of the most influential uh, um, leaders of his day. He had a very regal court, a whole palace, and, and, and everything, like, like some of his brothers, and, um, and uh, had, a, had a big influence. And it would later on influence Hasidus even into the 20th century, because after World War I, they would leave Trisk and move even to Warsaw and Lublin to Mamish, to uh, central Poland. Um, the next son was Reb David Tversky of Tolna. And he starts the Tolna dynasty. And he's the most influential of the sons, uh, of the eight sons in Ukraine. And, and he, and he um, becomes, uh, becomes the leader of, of, of Ukrainian Hasidus from all of the Chernobyl uh, uh, branches. Reb David was Rebbe for a long, long time, for over over forty years, about forty close to fifty years, he um, he has a big influence on the development of Hasidus in the Ukraine during the nineteenth century, and then you have Rabbi Yitzchak Tursky of Skver Skvira in the local language and the and in Ukrainian and the and uh, that starts Skver, which today is one of the most, probably the largest of all the Chernobyl descendants is Skver because the Yitzhak Tversky's uh, descendant was able to escape and make it to the United States, Rabbi Yaakov Yasef Tversky, and, um, and rebuild the square Hasidus, and eventually they, they, they built up the suburb of New Square in, uh, in outside of Muncie. And then you have the youngest son, Rabbi Yechanan Tversky, who settles down in Racham Estrifka. And he starts the Racham Estrifka branch of the Hasidus. Now, his son, Rabbi Yechanan Tversky's son of Racham Estrifka, was actually the first branch to settle in Yerushalayim, the first one to come to the land of Israel. And Racham Estrifka eventually becomes the Israel-based branch of Chernobyl. Till today, it's the prominent, um, there is a Chernobyl branch of Bnei Brak, there's other smaller, there's a, you know, a few Skveras here and there, um, a little bit of Trisk. But uh, Racham Estrifka is, is, is prominent in Yerushalayim till today. It, and there were, there was a presence of Chernobyl prior to that. The, the Reb, Aaron of Chernobyl himself, the one who stayed in Chernobyl, like I said, the oldest son, he eventually um, opens a shul. He sends some of his chassidim to Tzfas, and he opens a shul, a Chernobyl shtibel in Tzfas. So does Trisk, so does some of the other branches. There's a bunch of Chernobyl little shtiblach in, uh, in, uh, in Tzfas, till today, they're still open. And in the latter decades of the 19th century, um, they, they, there, a lot of the Hasidim and Sfas were affiliated with Chernobyl. The Rav and Sfas also for a time was affiliated with Chernobyl. And, and, and the Chernobyl Tzadikim in Europe, in Ukraine, were traditionally in charge of the, of the Kail Volin, the Hasidic Kail funds and distribution. They eventually, they got into a dispute with the Sadigura, uh, um, Rizhin Sadigura branch, and they opened a rival Kail, the Kail Zhitomir. But that's the story of the uh, of the different kailos and the money distribution of the Chalukah system in in the old yeshiv, which I covered in another episode, and there's definitely a lot to talk about also. So those are the 
the eight sons. As it happens, you know, we're not going to make it not equal here and gender-wise. There were a few daughters as well, um, three daughters, if not mistaken. One of them was an interesting story in her, in her own right. Her name was Shandel, and she marries a son of the Rizhoner, the son of Rabbi Yisrael of Rizhin. She marries Berniu, Daiv Berniu of Liova, a very problematic son of the Rizhoner who did not want to be Rebbe, a whole very famous or infamous, however you want to look at it, a whole episode, a tragic, really a personal tragedy uh, of how he wasn't interested in being Rebbe, and he left the Hasidus, and he and he uh, eventually joined the Maskilim and Chernovitz Rebbe, who someone who was a Rebbe of Hasidim in, in Liova, hundreds of Hasidim, son of the Rizhoner, and he left and he went into uh, into uh, to Chernovitz and the Maskilim, and he wrote a letter to the Jewish press, the newspapers, explaining his move, and he eventually came back. He was taken back to his brother's. A court in Sadiger, Rav Yaakov of Sadiger, his older brother, and he lived out alone, his very tragic and sad life, a whole story, which I'm not going to get into now. But uh, why is it important is because his wife was was a major catalyst in this story, because she was the one who, it was it was apparently a lousy marriage, and it seems that the Shalom Bias wasn't exciting there. And um, and and Shandl, Rebetzin Shandl, was the one who pushed him and encouraged him to stay being the rabbi, despite the fact that he was not interested. And she uh, went eventually for support by her brothers and lived out her life there, never got remarried. Um, and she and, and she never even received a divorce, actually. Um, so when she, um, and they didn't have children, she and uh, Berniu did not have children. So when Berniu passed away, Sir Bavram Yainkiv of Sadigoro, one of the greatest Sadikim of his generation, had to perform chalitza, to Rebetzin Shendel, uh, the daughter of the Chernobyl Magid. So that's, a, that's a, an interesting story as well. There's another daughter of the Chernobyl Magid, who, her name was Chanachaya, and hers, her, her husband was Reb David Horodetsky. And uh, he was a, you know, a, an impressive person in his own right, but he's also, it's interesting about it, is that he's the ancestor of Shmuel Abba Horodetsky. Shmuel Abba Horodetsky later became, many years later, he was a famous writer, he was a maskil, and he was one of the earliest, he called himself a historian of, of Hasidus. It's not clear if it was actually history or chronicling or just writing down traditions with his own slant. It's not the most reliable uh, works today, but he definitely devoted much of his uh, literary career to writing about the history of Hasidus. And, uh, and he became a very uh, prominent uh, writer in the early 20th century. That was Shmuel Abaharadetsky, so he was a direct descendant of the Chernobyl dynasty as well. Um, Ramatul Chernobyler, uh, the Chernobyler Magad, he passed away in Kiev in 1837, but he asked to be buried in a nearby town right outside of Kiev in Anatevka. And the reason he chose Anatevka is because at the time there was no church in Anatevka, and he did not want the church bells to disturb him while he's buried there. So, you know, I always found that interesting. First of all, that the fact that he's not buried in Chernobyl. His father is buried in Chernobyl, and today that's, it's, you could get there with the groups, but it's difficult. You have to get a permit to go in, and you have to go out within a couple hours. Um, but here he's buried in Anatevka. It's very convenient. It's right on the road outside of Kiev, and we could go there with the groups. It's very convenient whenever we start going back again. But also the fact that he felt that it was almost like a consecrated area because there was not going to be any church bells. 
I always thought about that when I do my tours of Harazesim, and there's so many tzaddikim buried there, and it's such a special place to be buried in Harazesim, but on the other hand, you do hear the church bells in the background, so at least in Anatevki, you don't, you don't, uh, you don't hear that. Um, so, the Chernobyl branch loses center stage, though it has prominent tzaddikim living there until the revolution, and the main branches become Tolna, or David of Tolna, and also Rav Trisk, to a lesser extent of its very regal courts, um, and they come to dominate Ukrainian Hasidus and Ukrainian Jewish life. Um, the, there's great, great sources on Chernobyl. There's a absolutely fantastic, the best thing ever written on Chernobyl just came out a couple of years ago, a book by Gadi Sagiv um, about the Chernobyl and its place in the history of the Hasidic movement. And But there's also a, that's an external source, I guess we could call it. And there's an internal books written, many of them, one of the best is Malchus based Chernobyl, very good book written on the, on the dynasty. There's others written about specific Sadiqim, of course, the the scion of the dynasty, uh, Dr. Abraham J. Tversky, has on his grandfather, Matchadev of Harnestipel. Uh, one of the things that that uh, all the different various branches have in common um, is that uh, as opposed to all the other Hasidim who say, V'yatzmach purkane v'korev meshiche, that our redemption should come, should grow, should v'yatzmach, should grow out and sprout, v'korev uh, meshiche, and Mashiach should come close, in the Chernobyl dynasty, they say, Vikarev Kates Meshiche. And that raises the question, is that a messianic statement? And there's always, everyone loves talking about, is, is the Hasidic movement altogether, is it messianic? And which branches are, is Breslov messianic? Is this messianic? Is Chabad messianic? And here you have a very, you know, pointed feature that all the different branches kept. There's a lot of differences between Today, between Trisk and Rachamastrifk and Skver and 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 and, uh, and Tolna and all the other ones, but yet this is 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 uh, something that they all have in in common. We call it Kates Meshiche, the end. Um, so I don't know the answer, but it's just something to think about. Um, Rabbi David of Tolna, one one expression of his influence was that one of the more minor um, Hasidic groups that lived in his area of jurisdiction was Breslov, very small. Um, Hasidus that did not have a Rebbe and most of the Hasidim living in Uman in the mid 19th century were Tolna Hasidim were Hasidim of the of, of Reb David, Reb David Tversky and, um, and uh, the Breslov would come on Rosh Hashanah to Uman and, and the, the Reb David's Hasidim they, since they you know, it was both they 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 didn't have uh, they didn't follow the any rebbe they didn't follow they didn't follow any live rebbe so there was you know the like I said the idea of Chernobyl was a very strong connection between the rebbe and Hasidim and very somewhat strong control and here you have all these members of the community who are not part of uh, they don't go with they don't go with the flow they have their own they do their own thing we'll say and that became an issue and. Uh, sometimes the Hasidim of Reb David would uh, break the windows of the uh, Kloys in Uman when they would come to Davin there on Rosh Hashanah, when the Breslovers would come. So there was a lot of tension and friction between that, uh, to a certain extent, even persecution of the Breslov Hasidim by the different Chernobyl uh, uh, um, branches, especially of Tolna at the time. But uh, it's, it's just an expression of its dominance. 
um, what Reb David of Tolna and and many of his brothers would would do is they would travel. They would travel. They would go to the Hasidim. They would go from town to town, and they would, like I said, they had this Magid contract, and it it uh, it would gave them a certain element of control of the kahal of the communal life and communal appointments of the shaykhit, of the cheder rabbi, like I said, of the rabbi of the community. Some saw this, especially in the Maskilic writings at the time, they saw this, oh, this is the, they're trying to control, they're trying to get funding, they're trying to get money. That really was not the issue. Um, you're talking about great, great tzaddikim, uh, people who cared for their chassidim and uh, had a very close connection to them, a fatherly connection to them, and it was not uh, not in any way to be seen in a negative light, as far as I understand, at least. In fact, uh, it actually saved Hasidus and it saved Yiddishkeit in the Ukraine during that time because it became a very useful device. This is a time when the official kahal, the official communal offices were in total decline. They were not recognized at, by the government anymore in Russia after 1844. And therefore, the idea that the Rebbe, the local tzaddik, would be able to control those appointments and be able to have a relationship with specific communities and be able to guide and lead what was going on in those individual communities with with visits that took place quite often, um, really oversaw the social and spiritual welfare of the towns under their uh, jurisdiction. Um, so that's an important point to note um, in 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 the influence and and how they were able to combat the forces of modernity during the second half of the nineteenth century. Now, what happens is that during the last decades of the 19th century and the early early 20th, there's economic downturn and a, a certain a poverty to these to some of these regal courts and a diffusion of the dynasties. And what happens is is that um, is that because most children of every rebbe became rebbes in their own right, became leaders in their own right. So they're all in the same more or less in the same territory, and they're all kind of. You know, geographically, they become more and more constrained. There's not enough uh, place in the southern pale of settlement uh, of Russia. Um, there's not enough room to move around, and there's, uh, you know, there's, 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 you know, disputes over territory and funding, and there's an economic downturn of the courts as a result. And many of the Hasidic courts of Chernobyl become completely impoverished by the end of the century and the first decade of the twentieth. And there was not enough, not enough, not enough Hasidim to go around to keep funding the regal courts. The more crowded it got, the fewer towns each one had for this Magid contract, the Ksav Magidus. There was another factor that was no less important, was the Tzaddik decree. That was the relationship they had with the Russian government. In 1843, three of the brothers were investigated by the Russian government. Um, someone had had framed them, forged a letter with the, one of their signatures, and denounced them to the government. And the three brothers were Nachum of Makarov, Reb David of Tolna, Reb Rav Trisk. And when it was exposed as a forgery, they were released. So the the Russian government saw that it was just a frame up, and they were released. But about twenty years later, in 1864, a new investigation was opened related to the Chernobyl tzaddikim and their custom to travel from town to town that I described. And it was said that it was about control and about money. That's what the investigation was about. The Russian government wanted to find out more about that. And it was because these, these visits were usually done with a lot of ceremony. The townspeople would welcome them in. And if there were those in the town who opposed 
the tzaddik arriving there, so then there was opposition to this ceremony, and this caused a big uh, to-do, and it eventually reaches the ears of the authorities, and they decide to investigate. So in 1865, the so-called tzaddikim decree is promulgated by the government, which essentially banned their travel, prevented the tzaddikim from traveling. They were only allowed to stay in their own court. They were able to get away around it by bribery or by saying they're traveling for health reasons, but for the most part, um, they were not able to travel anymore. They were not able to go to their Hasidim. They were not able to go to, from town to town. And uh, it was most probably, we don't know for sure, most probably it was only in the Kiev area. And it's possible that it was only to the members of the Torsky dynasty. But this had an adverse effect on the growth of, of Hasidus in, and the influence of the courts in the central Ukraine because this decree lasted for 31 years. It only was rescinded in 1896. So that was one factor that led to the downturn of the Chernobyl courts. Another factor was the general impoverishment, um, economic uh, situation of the Jews in the Pale um, during the late part of the 19th century. The pogroms, the emigration of Jews from the Pale um, in those closing decades. And um, all that contributed to the, uh, to the that's where we, by the time of World War I comes around, we're talking about a situation where, um, where the, the once uh, glorious courts of, of, uh, of Chernobyl are in a precarious situation, and it only gets worse because of World War I and the revolution, when the entire Chernobyl dynasty, with the exception of Trisk, which is an ind- independent Poland, of course, but everyone else finds themselves in the Soviet Union. So when the interwar period, in a, in a certain way, has a flourishing of of, uh, of, of the Hasidic courts in Galicia, in Hungary, in central Poland, in the Chernobyl branches, they're all in the Soviet Union. They're going to be crushed by, um, by the, uh, by communism. And that, of course, we'll have to speak about in a, another episode, the whole story of both the survival of Chernobyl under communism and the immigration of Chernobyl Rebbe's too. Poland to Romania to the United States to the land of Israel and how it transplants itself and rebuilds itself, which is a fantastic story in itself. But we'll have to get to that um, in, I guess, a future part on Chernobyl. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, virtual tours, trips, sponsorships, lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites and I hope you enjoyed.